Hello everyone, and welcome to Spooky Month Show. I'm your host, Junkie Turdman, and today, Tobor and I will be talking to you this episode about some very scary writings. I'm glad to see that you are finally calling it writings. Oh, thank you, Tobor. I I figured it was about time. (laughs) M.M. Frankly, it was. (laughs) M.M., huh? Nice. Well, everyone, I'm very sorry that we didn't bring you a show last week, but I wasn't feeling well. I'm still not great. Uh, I I don't feel well, but we're going to bring you uh, the show tonight. Yes, you look very depleted. Almost gaunt. I am not gaunt. I believe that you are. I am not. I'm fine. I'm just a little bit under the weather. I've been scanning you this whole time and your vitals are unstable. What do you mean, unstable? Your respiration is troubled and your thighs are swollen. My thighs are not swollen. I have thick cakes. This is true. Your biomass is 24% cake. And you sweat a lot. Well, at least your scanning program is working. Moto One Podcast Network. You're listening to Creative Writing, the motorcycle podcast so bad we received an ASBO in Wales. We've been voted Best Motorcycle Podcast five times by David Caruso impersonators across the globe. Check us out on patreon.com forward slash creative writing to find out how you can support the show. All right. With no further ado, let's get into this week's topics, this week's shows, this week's arresting conversations. Uh, hell, I'm out of here. Who am I fooling? <clears throat> yeah, I'm not fooling anybody. And no, that wasn't. That sounds like Sasquatch breathing over my shoulder. Oh, it's just me rubbing the pop filter on the mic. Listen, <clears throat> paranormal month, spooky activity. I don't believe in a lot of it. <clears throat> oh my God, what's that? A voice coming from my cabinet. <clears throat> oh, it's just me having trouble breathing because I don't feel well this week. Anyways, this is junk and uh, I'm going to bring to you a very spooky, spooky show. I don't know if it's spooky or not. Tobar put most of it together, so I'm not going to lie. And if you hear me struggling to breathe, it's not because a spirit is trying to suck my soul out of me. It's because I just have not been feeling great. So my apologies, first and foremost, for not having an episode last week. We had a really great one lined up. And then me and a couple other members of my family got sick along with the, I'm sure if you do a count uh, globally, like millions of people got sick last week. I was just one of of them. Uh, So listen. Patrons, we just want to say thanks to our patrons again, as usual. Uh, we are supported by our patrons on Patreon, as as our little bumper says there in the beginning. If you want to learn more, head over to uh, patreon.com forward slash creative writing. This is episode 283, Spooky Months. Welcome to Spooky Month. Thank you, Tobor, for insulting me, as usual, uh, leading in. To this uh, this episode, thank you. Done a great job of that, and thank you for taking over uh, and resuming production uh, duties on the board. Um, the views and opinions of the participants of the Creative Writing Motorcycle Podcast are those of the participants. Do not reflect policy position or opinions of Creative Creative Writing Moto One Podcast, our network, any affiliates, and any of our other great shows. Which uh, stay in the loop here because I'm going to be revamping weekly Wiggins since it's not weekly anymore. Uh, he has submitted a couple more shows to me. I'm going to be producing them and putting them out. And we're going to be calling it Wiggins in the Wild, I believe. So we're going to be uh, refreshing that show and hopefully rebooting it here pretty soon. Uh, and so there's no opinions uh, on this show tonight. We're just going to bring you a little spooky episode. Maybe it's not even spooky. Uh, maybe just some tragedy and uh, other fun stuff, you know, about motorcycling. <laughs> Who doesn't love motorcycle tragedy uh, or tragedy, as some people say? Uh, anyways, so yeah, let's get into it. And uh, listen, before we get into the show, when it comes to making plans, you are the best. You're the best. From those delicious barbecues, special birthdays, unforgettable family get-togethers, and maybe even a awesome 
Halloween trick-or-treat night. Well, the same way you plan for those important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster like a hurricane, a flood, a wildfire, tornado, a ghost NATO, maybe a shark NATO. You never know when the, any of this is going to happen. But you can sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. You can prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started today at ready.gov forward slash plan. A public service message brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Slightly modified by yours truly, Junkie Turdman. Uh, also, our friends Nancy and Mark, the creators of Mimi and Motorcycle, Mimi, Mimi and Motorcycle, Mimi and Moto, the Motorcycle Monkeys, they want you to join their mission to get more children excited about motorcycles and possibly monkeys. I'll use ask, have to ask them. You can go to MimiAndMoto.com where you can purchase some books, they got the Adventures of Mimi and Moto, Mimi and Moto Ride the Alphabet, two of my favorites. Mimi and Moto Ride the Alphabet actually helped me learn to read. I have to give it to Nancy and Mark and uh, thank them once again for my literacy. And along with t-shirts, onesies, ornaments, plushies, all sorts of goodies. We got a little uh, story about them coming up in the about middle of the show too. So stay tuned to learn some things you may have not known about Nancy and Mark. But what you should know is that they're working on a new chapter book called Mimi and Moto's Magical Meteors First Gear, which will be released by early 2023. They are working furiously on that right now. So stay tuned. Go ahead and order some of the other things uh, beforehand. And then when 2023 starts out, before you think of buying a new motorcycle, even a new tie for your dog. Some people do that sort of stupid stuff. Go out and uh, shop their brand new book, <clears throat> Mimi and Moto's Magical Meteors First Gear. Should be out early 2023. I can't think of a better way to start off your new year than reading. All right, everybody. Well, thank you. <clears throat> Sorry, thank you for sticking with us. Sorry, I, I still don't feel well. I'm going to try to keep uh, keep my problems to myself off mic, but thank you for sticking with us, everybody. Um, before we get into this week's show, we'd like to thank our patrons, obviously for making it possible. Thank our sponsors like Mimi and Moto, Field Initiative Knives, the omnipotent Clobman's Pickles. And I'd also like to take this time before we get into Spooky Month to do some housekeeping. So congratulations to Wiggins. Uh, baby Wiggins arrived a couple weeks ago, and as soon as I, well, I, I have this little little cold going on, so but as soon as I get over it and I'm all the way done with it, I just, I'm going to go over there and grab her and sniff her and toss her really high in the air like all babies like, you know, even though she's only like two weeks old. And uh, I got to see her today, but I did keep my distance because, you know, I uh, didn't want to infect anybody. But, you know, when me and Wiggins like hug and snuggle, like we do it hardcore. So I'm sure he's sick and he's going to take it back in the fam and I'm going to have them all sick. So the great thing is, is that everyone will be sick and I'll just be able to go over there anyway. But yeah, congrats to Wiggs. Uh, got to go on a ride with him and the other Chris today. Uh, we had a lot of fun and uh, it was really good seeing them um, for the first time in a little bit. Also, uh, thank you to Paul and Becky for the lovely emails this week. Uh, Becky actually may have in inspired me to make a map of Buttfuckers Gulch and send it out to all of our patrons or I guess anyone who might want to test their metal and actually, uh, uh, you know, prove themselves to the Gulch. And uh, yeah, it was a really good e email she sent me. Well, I, I guess she sent me one asking where the Gulch was. It was a really good email I sent to her. Becky, I, ha I mean, if I do say so myself, right, the email was was pretty legit. I gave you uh, the starting and the ending place of the Gulch and everywhere in between and all the fun places that you can ride. And I think I'll put a little map on it, hand-drawn for all of our patrons. You know how good that's going to turn out. Anyway, uh, so also, patrons, as a friendly reminder, I know a lot has changed over the last couple years and even the last couple months, and this includes our patron pledges and addresses. Some of you patrons have started giving more uh, and pledging more, but they're, you're not on Patreon at the next pledge level. And while I appreciate the patron support that you give, you deserve more. And I try to keep track, and I try to... Um, uh, send anybody on those tiered, uh, 
you know, levels, those appropriate awards. But if I miss it, you know, perchance happen to forget, hey, this person's been pledging at this level when they're actually only a patron at this lower level. I try to remember, I try to give the awards at your appropriate level, but I can't, excuse me, I can't change your tier on my end. Like on the back end, it'll, you know, obviously, I think people go in there and sneak more money, right? Hey, these, <laughs> these guys, oh, put this guy on a $20 Patriot list uh, when he's only a dollar. I can't do it on my end. So you have to do it on your end. And also, some of you have moved, uh, or if you continue to move or know you're going to be moving over the last couple of years, even if you're not a patron, once in a while, I will blast out stickers or like Christmas cards or whatever to everybody that's ever been a patron or has ever even sent their address to us for winning a prize or something like that. So if you have moved over the last year or couple of years due to COVID or due, due to whatever, uh, please update your address and your pledge level in Patreon so that you can get any swag that we send out or that you deserve to get. All right, with no further ado, let's get into our first story. The Origin of the Gremlin Bell The definition of a gremlin is an imaginary mischievous sprite regarded as responsible for an unexplained problem or fault, especially a mechanical or electrical one. And the Oxford English Dictionary cites the British Royal Air Force with the creation of the word to mean a low or menial person. And they're also credited with its use to mean an unspecified problem. I think it's interesting that gremlin maybe came, maybe originated from the word goblin. We're, we're not 100% sure. I'm not 100% sure. And the, uh, the dictionary gives that as a possible uh, origin as well. But one thing that is certain is you've heard of a gremlin bell, I'm sure, if you ride motorcycles and maybe even someone's given you one. Um, personally, I don't have a gremlin bell. And uh, I might tell you why at the end of this uh, story. But there are several common stories of the gremlin bell. And we're going to talk a little bit about who is right and who is wrong. And then I'm going to give you the actual definition or the, I'm sorry, the actual or true origin of the gremlin bell and shut the door on this, uh, the origin story once and for all. Now, hopefully I don't take any fun out of it. I didn't think about this. Hopefully I don't take any of the fun out of it. So I guess believe what you want. But the common stories around the Gremlin Bell uh, started out a couple different ways. The first one is that I've read this story so many times online, I can't even tell you. A gray beard. That's all they say is a gray beard. An old gray beard was riding his motorcycle down the road one night. So I guess it's not a lady unless, I don't know, she's from Kentucky or maybe South Italy, someplace where the ladies grow beards. Going down the road one night has some sort of mechanical problem. Electrical, on several of the stories, it's the lights go out, all the bike loses electrical. The old gray beard pulls the side of the road, obviously doesn't can't illuminate himself to make himself seen to any oncoming traffic, but he's alone anyway. You know how these stories are. You're always alone on a dark road when everything goes to shit. So this old gray beard is trying to remedy the problem when out of nowhere a hooded figure appears. And the hooded figure gives the old gray beard a bell and says, hang this bell on the lowest part of your bike so that when you ride, its sound will attract the road gremlins to it. And when they try to grab the bell, they will be distracted from the rest of your bike and they'll fall off in the road and you won't pick any of them up and it'll keep you safe. Hmm. Well, that story sounds like total bullshit to me. But maybe you like that story. Maybe you like to believe in the uh, imaginary or mischievous sprites that go through all sorts of great stuff like electrical systems. We all know we have electrical gremlins here and there. Have you ever had a seat gremlin? Has anyone ever had a seat gremlin? I bet that that's like a sexy experience. We'll keep that for another show. But another, pardon me, 
And I just have a throat gremlin right now. They didn't like that story. Another origin story is that similar to this, uh, World War II vets came back from, you know, World War II uh, and flying, I'm guessing, because the uh, if the RAF is the ones that uh, um, originated the, uh, the word uh, gremlin, I'm guessing these were Air Force pilots. They had gremlin bells. And these bells were meant to bring you, uh, you know, keep you awake at night. I, I've read some, I've read a whole bunch and, uh, and keep, keep the gremlins, basically the same thing. Keep the gremlins off your bike. You're always, you always have to be gifted a gremlin bell and, uh, you always have to hang out on the lowest part of your frames. That's where all the gremlins jump on. Right. So that was another one. Um, get lowered. Uh, I think it's getlowered.com. They had a pretty good, uh, they had a really good story. They started out on the right track and then it just turned sideways. So their, their rendition is that, Hey, the gremlin bell was, uh, you know, World War II flying aces again, had these bells and, uh, they would hang them around the cockpit of their bombers and things like that. Because when you're flying, you know, five minutes, ten minutes of it is like intense, crazy action. You're getting shot at by Luftwaffe. You're you're bombing a city, and then like for hours and hours and hours, you're not doing anything. You're sitting around a cockpit with droning uh, at nighttime, usually no lights, droning engines. You know, things like that. You know, looking for uh, Jerry's or Krauts off the tail gun. Blah 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 blah, and. We do know that in during World War II, uh, and actually, you know, a lot during the 40s and 50s and 60s, um, the military uh, gave amphetamines out, and it wasn't the low-level stuff that you get on the street, but they gave uh, amphetamines, they give caffeine gum out now. I mean, they give all sorts of stuff to people, and they were they were using a lot of drugs and doing a lot of experiments with LSD and things like that at the time, and so. Uh, the get lowered story has it that you know they would hang these around the cockpit to keep them from dozing off when they doze start to doze off and they hear the bell ring or whatever the the bell would be constantly ringing keep them awake i don't know how a ringing bell constantly wouldn't be um as soothing eventually as droning engines for hours and hours i don't know but that was their story um and the fact that these guys may or may not <clears throat> have got hooked on these amphetamines while they were in the army <clears throat> or the, I'm sorry, the, the air force, I think it was the army actually. Um, uh, they came home with some problems and we all know this is true. And we all know that young men coming home from action, uh, were very bored getting in horrendous vehicle accidents. And that doesn't exclude motorcycles. Uh, and these gremlin bells were a way to help them keep these personal gremlins, all the atrocities of war, the, uh, you know, the army issued or, or government issued amphetamines, you know, <laughs> the, the tremendous, um, you know, excitement and into the, the return to civilian life. There's nothing like all these things. So these gremlin bells were just like a way for them to ward off their personal gremlins. And I think that that one's the closest. And uh, you know, everybody has their sh their shit. I forget exactly what the uh, what the story on Get Lord was, but that's the gist of it. You can go read it yourself. And that one's pretty close. Uh, I'm going to tell you the original, the real story of the Gremlin Bell, and why they were sort of close. They were the closest. I'd, I in my in my opinion. And here's the original. Uh, story of the gremlin bell whether or not you believe gremlins are creepy little uh things that haunt your motorcycle whether you believe that there's some weird little entity or sprite out there on a dark road just waiting for you to pass by so they can jump on your motorcycle and bring your whole trip down or maybe even hurt you whether you believe they're malevolent uh and ever present in every project you do whether you believe one jumped down my throat five minutes ago, I don't know. But the real story of the Gremlin Bell is this. It does start out with World War II pilots. And the bells were initially issued to them on a certain island. We'll get into that in a second. A lot of these um, uh, pilots would come back with the bells either hanging on their zipper pull 
or somewhere on their uniform. And the bells were issued to them, of all things, uh, were issued to these pilots by monks. So they re- the bells are called Capri bells, for anybody that wants to know. We call them gremlin bells, guardian bells, road bells, whatever. The original bells were called Capri bells, and here's how it all started. Here's how those uh, pilots did come back with these bells initially. And maybe they did help them fight some of their own personal gremlins, but... The, the whole reason behind the bell is the, uh, the protection aspect. So on the island of Capri off Italy, uh, they would go there for R&R to get a, to get a break from the bombing runs, the flight. You know, this is in World War II, flight was like brand, brand new the way they were doing it. And uh, in World War I, there was limited flight, uh, limited dogfights. World War II, that was a main uh component of it was dogfights, bombing runs, so on and so forth. So World War II, these aces, these these uh, bombing squads, things like that, they were getting shot down left and right. You know, uh, they would go, they, your, your life was tough and hectic. And when you got a little break, they would send you or they'd rotate you out and they would send you to the Isle of Capri. And what was on the Isle of Capri was a monastery. And there were monks there. That would that would gift these bells to the uh, soldiers, the uh, the pilots that were they were having some relaxation, recuperation, and maybe even some healing there. The Capri bells, the monks uh, issued these things because there was a legend on that island, and the legend dated back to you know thousands of years ago, when a little shepherd boy was lost on the Isle of Capri, very poor. Uh, he lived with his mother. They only had one sheep. It was his pride and joy, or one lamb, rather. And out one night, he lost it. I I forget exactly what he was doing. He wasn't paying attention. He thought he heard his mom start to call his name. But when he looks around, his little sheep is gone, his lamb. And so he's frantically running around trying to find it. And in a moment of panic, I guess he was uh, headed straight toward a cliff, um, he thinks he hears the sheep, um, or he hears a bell, and he, and he thinks he hears the sheep uh, in that direction. So he starts heading that direction, and moments before he steps off a cliff, a huge beam of light comes down from the sky, down descends the archangel Michael, and he gives the boy this a bell, and he says, you know, tells the, the little kid, hey, listen, take this bell wherever you go, Follow the sound of the bell. It will it will bring you protection, and bequeaths the bell to this boy. The legend uh, lives on in Capri for thousands of years. Enter World War II, and the Capri bell was a symbol of protection. Most of the original Capri bells are very small, just like the ones that you hang on your motorcycles nowadays. They had a clover uh, uh, inscribed on them, which was. Typical of a clover is, you know, a universal sign of, of good luck, not just for Irish, but, you know, there's horseshoes, clover, stars, everybody has their thing. But there was a clover on this bell, uh, on the originals, and they would give them out. The monks would give them out based on this legend of uh, the archangel saving this little boy's life and giving him a bell to guard him. So the Capri bells were given out to all these aces, these flying aces that were coming to the island for some R&R. And the legend of it is that you have to be just like the archangel Michael gave the little shepherd boy a bell. You must be given a bell for its protection to work. You can never buy one for yourself uh, and you can never uh, change ownership of one. They stay with each other. And so these Capri bells were gifted, came home with the pilots after World War II ended. And of course, we know that's one of the main places where motorcycling uh, caught on as a craze um, after it had kind of waned after the Great Depression. It is reinvigorated by all these returning pilots looking for the sensation of flying and looking for brotherhood and looking for clubs and things like that. And, and the whole biker thing starts up again. Then these Capri Bells came home with them too. And they gave the Capri Bells out Obviously, the same way you give a, a gremlin bell or a guardian bell out, you have to give it to somebody. You can't buy yourself one, so it has to be gifted. 
Um, and it offers you protection. And the whole legend was lost of where they came from. And the road gremlin, you know, of course, with, with the Royal Air, Air Force being credited with coming up with the word gremlin to represent all the uh, mechanical and uh, unexplained problems, faults, and so on and so forth in life and on the motorcycle. Uh, there you go. There you have it. This will protect you from that. Not only from that, but from your personal ones too, you know, I guess. So if, if the uh, Get Lowered article is right. But that's where the original Gremlin Bells come from. They're called Capri Bells, and you can look up the legend uh, all over. So yeah, that was the original the original Gremlin Bell, where the word Gremlin even came from. So there you go. Thank you. You're welcome. Let's move on to the next story shall we and i'm gonna play a spooky little transition here i don't know if that was spooky all right this next next story is called shootouts waco texas is a town familiar with tragedy Showdowns between the police and militant groups have happened more than once. And while the standoff with the Branch Davidians may be one of the most widely recognized incidents in the world, in May of 2015, nine more spirits were added to the immortal realm when a shootout took place at a Twin Peaks restaurant. Spooky music. So the day started out like any other day at Twin Peaks. It was a chain restaurant that was already plagued with internal strife, sexual harassment claims, intellectual and copyright infringement lawsuits. You name it, this restaurant had it going on. And it wasn't just this restaurant. It was the entire chain. So we could probably do a whole episode on uh, Twin Peaks if you wanted to. It's not very motorcycle related. But this one, May 17th, 2015... It was going to be a day like no other, or maybe the topper on the shit cake, depending on how you want to look at it, right? So the restaurant, as it was called by some critics, was a perfect spot for beer, food, and mayhem. And it was, imagine a Hooters, but a lodge theme, right? So uh, that's why they a lot of people called it restaurant. The waitresses were really skimpy, uh, revealing clothes. So you can imagine, like, perfect spot for... Uh, little biker get-together. So inside, patrons, including regulars and families, celebrating the nearby Baylor University's graduation graduation weekend, and of course, tons of bikers. Approximately 200, according to sources, uh, were at the restaurant that day. And Twin Peaks was the venue for the Texas Confederation of Clubs and Independents, or the Texas COC&I. It was a regional meeting to discuss disputes, rights, and political issues within the coalition of biker clubs. And initially, previously, I guess I should say, there had been a few deaths and some skirmishes between the Banditos MC and the Cossacks MC in a couple years prior. And a general turf war uh, was being discussed regarding which club had the right to wear the Texas lower rocker. On their colors is basically how this whole thing came down. So Twin Peaks had agreed to host this event, and it was initiated by the Banditos, who, according to some articles I read, were basically the majority of the Texas uh, COCNI. Um, this confederation of clubs they made up the majority of it from what I got, what I gathered. So they were claiming, hey, this you know we are recognized here as the majority club. Uh, also, Texas classifies the Banditos as a tier two threat, just like other organized gangs like the Bloods and Crips and stuff like that. But it didn't recognize the Cossacks as the same threat level. So there's another uh, reason the Banditos figured, hey, listen, we we have claim on this region. So the Cossacks disagreed, and they showed up to the meeting uninvited to dispute that claim and show dominance in the area. Well, the local police had been made aware of the meeting beforehand, and with a few murders going on in the year or two prior, I'm sure they had felt tensions rising between the clubs. So 
they they were ready for this and they had tried to negotiate with Twin Peaks to avoid the event altogether, but they described the establishment as being uncooperative and very unhelpful when dealing with the motorcycle gangs in the past, hosting events, things like that. They just wouldn't do it. So local police and state troopers were already nearby anticipating trouble before the events began to even unfold. And as they watched from the parking lot, a fight broke out and then the first pistol shot set off a mass of chaos and a gunfight that left nine dead and 20 injured. Afterward, 177 arrests were made, and bail bonds were set extremely high as a measure to keep hostilities and retaliation attempts as low as possible in the next few days, well, in the next few months. And and, uh, there's a whole other episode there that we could do on this, but yeah, there was an extremely high... Uh, uh, bail bonds, and a whole story that unraveled after this. We can get into in another episode. But amidst the guns, the knives, the brass knuckles, the clubs, the hammers, assorted other weapons, and a multitude of shell casings and, unfortunately, puddles of blood in the parking lot, it was determined that four bikers had been shot by the police and killed, while the rest died at the hands of the rival clubs. So we will do another episode on this because there's several great biker shootouts that I think we'd be uh, remiss not to, to talk about and talk about the, you know, we don't want to get into club life, but uh, it is one of the things, one of the uh, aspects of um, motorcycling that we don't really think about that much when you think of, uh, you know, just getting out there and having fun and doing events. You know, there's sometimes people don't agree. So the Waco Twin Peaks closed shortly after this uh, uh, went down, and it's unknown if anyone has ever experienced paranormal activity in one of the most public and deadly club disputes in recent history. And I just wanted to point out that a lot of times, um, as you remember in the past, we... um, I've interviewed a couple times Miranda Young from Ghost Biker Explorations, and there's a lot of paranormal and ghost shows out there that pop up this time of year on TV, and everybody's always going to these places like insane asylums or prisons where things, uh, tragedies went down or like a great fire burned down a kindergarten or, you know, there, there always some place where a lot of people were uh, together and, and mass tragedies happened, but I want to know Things like this. What about when there was a very public place? This doesn't have to be some spooky sanatorium down some dirt road in a rural county. This was a very public uh, Waco, Texas restaurant and still lives lost, much tragedy. And I wonder if anyone's gone there to the scene. No matter what it is, it could be a sporting goods store now for all I know. And I wonder if uh, anybody's gone there and seen if they um, are picking up anything from the other side and uh, in the wake of that devastation let's take a quick break we'll get back with the uh, rest of the the show I spent a lot of time in the garage but even more time in the rain and mud in 95 I helped tow your moving trailer and in 09 it was sparks from me your chains dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com, brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. Hey, everybody. This is Junkie, and I'm here to remind you that Clobman Pickles is bringing back Pickletine for the holiday season. Clobman Pickles, for 132 years, 7 months, and 16 weeks, has been making quality pickles that only championship motorcyclists are privileged to eat. Not even motorcyclists, sometimes designers, sometimes artists that uh, help render motorcycles. If you're in the motorcycling world and you don't have a thick, juicy, crispy, slimy Clobman pickle sliding over your fat, puffy, greasy, smelly lips down your raunchy, crusty gullet into your flappy, acidic stomach, then you don't know what you're missing out on. Delicious pickles for over 136 years. Clobman's, the only pickles for motorcyclists.
In September of 2015, Nancy and Mark, the creators of Mimi and Moto, they were inspired to create their first book when their daughter was just an infant. She would read the AMA's magazine, American Motorcyclist, with her parents and point to the motorcycles in the pictures. When they tried to find an age-appropriate book to further inspire her curiosity, however, they were at a loss. So what do you do when you want to engage and encourage your child's interest in your passion? You provide the solution to the problem. After the success of their first book, they started on a second, and we are proud to have been the first podcast that they were on back in October of 2018 during the Kickstarter campaign for Mimi and Moto Ride the Alphabet. Well, since then, not only have they been gaining speed, uh, Moto America and American Flat Track carry their merchandise in the booths. They also run the Kid Zone at Moto America's Road Atlanta events. Join their mission to get more children excited about motorcycles. Head over to MimiAndMoto.com to buy onesies, books, toys, ornaments, and much more. Engage tomorrow's generation today. That's MimiAndMoto.com. All right, everybody, welcome back. Spooky. I wish I had some spooky guitar to play for you. Let's see. What's a spooky chord? Let me see. Spooky. Listen, this isn't, this isn't spooky, but this is tragic. On the topic of children's authors and motorcycles, there happens to be another story that intertwines both worlds and ties into this episode's theme. Allen was a pacifist, but when the Secretary of War issued the call with the words, Your country needs you, young Allen heeded it. He enlisted in the Army as a signaling officer, and as second lieutenant, Allen was sent to Somme on the Western Front in 1915. He would soon personally absorb all the horrors of war. His best friend, Ernest, had just sat down for a tea when, sh when a shell came over the trench and blew him to bits. Shortly thereafter, Ernest's brother was killed by a German sniper. Later, Allen's senior officer was also struck on a line-laying mission, and Allen had to take over. He laid a communications line so perfectly that it could withstand the Army's coming barrage of preemptive artillery strikes. This was important during World War I because there were no sophisticated means of radio or satellite communications at the time, and it was the only way for the men to communicate with the commanding officers and for anybody at a forward operating base to know what was going on in the field. After the artillery strike, his unit pushed forward and was almost completely mowed down by German machine guns waiting on the other side. And although his war service and writing history continues in great detail, he's best known for his post-war classics. And although Allen felt conflicted about the war and he opposed the propaganda having to directly lie about the circumstances and conditions... His bear of little brain often reflected Allen's own views about the world and intellectual class struggles. After all, Allen Alexander Milne's Winnie the Pooh was a simple fellow that put honesty and friendship before all else. Now, although A.A. A. Milne wasn't a motorcyclist, he did write some poetry about cyclists and the things that uh, can go wrong. But he was a member of the Signal Corps, and this is a commonality that he shares with an elite group of Army motorcyclists, the White Helmets. The White Helmets were founded in 1927 as the motorized display team for the Royal Corps of Signals in Great Britain. The Corps performed choreographed displays on motorbikes as well as on horseback back in the day. They were set to music. And the feats displayed uh, precision, control, and the bond between soldier and horse, and similarly, soldier and motorcycle, respectively. The White Helmets performed stunts in front of titillated crowds for 90 years, from 1927 to 2017. 
And they weren't the only corps with the motorcycle display team. The Royal Artillery Display Team, called the Flying Gunners, and I've heard them called the Red Helmets before, although it was only in one uh, actual team member's recollection, and I've never heard them called the Red Helmets anywhere else, so I think they were just called the Flying Gunners. Side note, aside, members of both corps would eventually form a separate group called the Magnificent Seven. Former member Kevin Nichols states that this was a little bit ironic since the team always needed eight riders to evenly perform the stunts and be balanced in their numbers. So a few of the members also had standalone careers outside the team, and one of these men was Robin Wintersmith. Robin Wintersmith performed all of his jumps without a landing ramp. I guess maybe it was, was common at the time. He'd land straight to the grass. This made landings a little bit precarious, especially when you consider the fact that he was setting British distance records. He set several records from launch ramp to grass, including a jump over 31 cars. In 1979, while performing with the Mag 7, he smashed fellow Brit Eddie Kidd's record of 23 cars by clearing 31 at a distance of 189 feet at the Elstree Air Show in England. He landed on the grass at over 70 miles an hour on his Suzuki RM250, and he only suffered a few bruises along the way. And the fans were pumped. Maybe Evil Knievel, who often jumped ramp to ramp and concrete to concrete, could have taken a lesson. Hey, jump a dirt bike first off and land on some grass. Secondly, uh get bruises and not shattered pelvises and injured brain bones. Uh, so after he set this record of 189 feet, it wasn't necessarily the 31 cars. That was also a record, but the distance is uh, really what mattered there. He would jump cars all the time, different m- numbers of cars, different, uh, you know, distances and this and that, uh, However, the the new um, another Brit jumper a month later, right after he sets this record of uh, thirty one cars and one hundred and eighty nine feet, uh, he would would clear the uh, a new Brit jumper just just thirty days later, cleared the one hundred and ninety foot mark and snatched Robin's record away. So later that summer, Robin at- would attempt to get his record back and set a new benchmark. Eddie Kidd was there to witness the event. Robin had returned to Elstree, but this time he was going for a world record. He would jump 30 cars, so not 31, but in contrast to his previous jumps of uh, equal or greater distance, this one would include a landing ramp and would cover 212 feet. So roughly, what, 20-something more feet than uh, than he had the uh, few months prior? The 29-year-old powered his Suzuki RM250 toward the launch ramp in front of 10,000 screaming spectators. And as he took off, he soared through the air. Another jumper named Lee Sobol, who was there that day, witnessed the event. Uh, He gave an account of it on Cycle Jumpers, and he said that Lee... uh, or I'm sorry, Lee stated that that Robin Wintersmith's bike was slightly crooked after takeoff, so he corrected mid-flight, but that brought his front wheel up really very high in the air, and Robin impacted the deck of the landing ramp and stopped immediately. The visage is almost otherworldly, as you would expect him to either flip over the handlebars or cartwheel off the bike at 70 miles an hour, uh, coming down from like, you know, 10 or 15 feet in the air, just hitting the ramp. Instead, he clings to the bike as if his hands were strapped to the handlebars, and his body becomes an unwilling ragdoll, having its life wrung from it in a split second. The Magnificent Seven teammate Kevin Nichols left the team, citing Robin's death and the death of another member the year before as a wake-up call. And Lee Sobol, the other jumper who was there to witness the event that day, was convinced that if Winter Smith would have just uh, got his bike level mid-flight, he would have just pinched the landing. Cycle jumping is a sport where every performer shows up to work knowing the consequences for failure but still pushes uh, the limits of fate. And Robin Wintersmith is uh, no different. There was a song written about him uh, by Richard Dobson 
and almost made famous by Nancy Griffith. Go listen to it if you get a chance. And it's got great lyrics. Like, this is the story. It's sad and gory. (laughs) And also another line. I guess he did his best. Yeah, he did his best, all right. You tried jumping uh, 250 at 70 miles an hour over 31 cars and coming up a little short. So needless to say... The song is hardly the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, but then again, every tragedy has its minstrel, and this one is no different. All right. All right let's do uh, another spooky chord here. If I was sitting at home late at night and I heard that, Coming from downstairs, especially in the kitchen area, I'd be pretty creeped out, especially if I didn't own a guitar. All right, folks, this is going to be our last story, and this is probably the most gruesome, so buckle up, buttercup. Robert Beckowitz, born October 5th, 1948. He was an American biker, apparently. That's the whole reason I picked this story. And I just became aware of his circumstances a couple weeks ago. It's like the case got some steam recently for some reason. He was born October 5th, 1948, and raised along with his brother Gerald in an orphanage. According to friends, he would talk about being beaten in the orphanage, um, had a hard life. A neighbor had said that uh, his friends and other people that knew him called him very troubled. This is perfect biker material right here. What is unknown to me and maybe known to you or other other people with insight to his personal life is uh, just how how much of uh, the biker lifestyle he lived. I have no idea. Was he into, uh, you know, your typical, quote, biker things? Or did he just like riding motorcycles? This I don't know. And I read another account that his friend, uh, who will come up in the story, had stabbed him while they were on a motorcycle ride together. I only found that in one spot. So I'm going to throw that out as a red herring and just tell you the tragedy that was uh, that became Robert Beckowitz's uh, final moments final moments of a biker in trouble so not only was he a troubled young man growing up he apparently had bad taste in friends and on July 17th in uh, northwest Detroit, I'm not going to give you his address or anything like that, but he was in Detroit. With If you're not from the United States, imagine the worst city in your country. <laughs> That's Detroit. <laughs> I'm not saying L.A. is like, you know, too far behind, but, uh, you know, we got our own fair share problems. But Detroit, I'm sorry, the Lions. I'll, anyway, we'll get into this later. This is this is supposed to be a tragic kind of scary wake you up story, not a uh, not a story about Detroit. But if you want to get scared out of your mind, go to Detroit. Uh, so, anyways, that evening he's sitting around uh, watching the Benny Hill show with his uh, girlfriend, who was, I believe, uh, twenty one, and uh, his be- one of his best friend, I believe who was a 37-year-old guy named James Edward Glover. You know in a story when somebody has three first names, it's already bad. We know Robert Beckowitz. We know now James Edward Glover. I think you know which one's the victim and which one's... Uh, okay, anyway. Well, anyways, give you, to give a little backstory here, James Edward Glover and Robert Beckowitz's girlfriend, Janine Lynn Clark three other names, were secretly having an affair. And this is potentially why they think 
Glover might have been motivated to do the crime that we're going to hear about in a second. But while he's sitting there watching the Benny Hill show uh, on the couch around midnight, I think, or 1 a.m., Glover excuses himself and walks down the hallway. He had a cane. He had some spinal damage, so that'll kind of play into... uh, play into some of this later. But Beckowitz, like any good biker in the 80s, has a, uh, a gun. So this is July 17th. I didn't give you a year. I believe it's 1982. So my my, my apologies, yes. So, <clears throat> uh, yeah, so any any good biker in the 80s has a mustache, a skullet, mullet, or long hair, and a couple um, pow-pow pistols. <laughs> I was trying to think of something funny to say. Anyways, so Glover excuses himself from the couch, limps down the hallway with his cane to grab one of Beckowitz's guns. He comes up behind Beckowitz and shoots him with a forty-five, killing him. And then proceeds to stab him between 83 and 84 times. And if that wasn't heinous enough, over the next three days... James Edward Glover and Janine Lynn Clark have a drug-fueled sex, I don't even know what you would call it, dismemberment party where they take methamphetamine, they take pictures of themselves nude with his corpse, all while mutilating it with a hacksaw. And... uh they did all sorts of terrible things. For three days, they did did this. Just went on a crazy drug bender. Uh, did things with Beckowitz's dismembered corpse now, using his feet, using his parts of his genitals, using his fingers, uh, things like that. Stuffing them in all sorts of, you can imagine, places uh, on his now um, dismembered body. And by the end of the uh, three-day ordeal... He'd been cut up into 14 pieces, where, which were then hidden around the apartment in plastic bags. And they estimate that he had around 100 stab wounds. So initially, uh, Janine Lynn Clark um, called the police and confessed everything. And when the police came, James Edward Glover was found heavy, heavily sedated on drugs and arrested in the apartment. He pleaded not guilty, um, but he was charged with second-degree murder, the use of a firearm in the commission of a felony, and the mutilation of a human body. Um, and he was sent to jail with no no bond. He was found, he, he tried to claim um, insanity, but he was found uh, mentally competent to stand trial. So then he pleaded guilty to charges of murder. He pleaded guilty to everything pretty much. Um, and, and promised that he would not be given a life sentence. Uh, Janine, uh, Clark, uh, she said that she was a, uh, kept the whole reason she didn't do anything earlier. She had to wait for him to go into this drug field stupor is because he was kind of holding her, um, captive after all this went down and she was scared because he just killed her boyfriend and he had a gun. However, they there are several pictures of her mutilating and dismembering the body as well, completely naked with a big smile on her face and a hacksaw in her hand. And uh, yeah, they said this is a little hard to believe that you were being held captive and that you were fearing, you know, afraid to get away. She also left the apartment to go buy more film for the camera and apparently some, you know, other supplies and drugs and whatnot and come back. So they said, we don't believe actually that you were held captive. (laughs) So, uh, her claim of being, uh, this is according to, um, a website, uh, her claim of being held against her was supported by Glover. However, you know, like I said, they they determined that she had gone out on her own like two or three times to get supplies, and you know, the the photographs give graphic evidence that something else happened. So uh, she seemed 
she didn't seem fearful. She didn't seem revulsed. She was smiling. So she also got uh, six to 10 years for mutilating a corpse. But since she did not actually commit a murder, she was free afterwards. And so she's still out there. So if you're a motorcyclist, and uh, the whole reason I even looked up to see if he was a motorcyclist because he looked like one. He was a little bit overweight. He looked like a hooligan. He looked like like Wiggins about two years ago. Long hair, big mustache, a little bit overweight. I could have seen him cruise and lived in Detroit. Obviously rode a Harley probably. So yeah, we lost a, we lost a brother that day and who knows his life went from bad. You know, he or, or beaten in the orphanage, I'm assuming since he lived in Detroit that he was really already sort of suffering <laughs> and, and and not to laugh and make fun of it. But, you know, his life didn't get much better after finding uh, a beautiful young woman to fall in love with, only to have her fall in love with this weirdo guy uh, who then, for no reason, um, while you're watching Benny Hill, of all things, like what a horrible show to die to, uh, yeah, commits this heinous crime. So that is Spooky Spokes. Just remember, when you're driving through Detroit, when you're driving through Waco, Texas, when you're driving through the Walmart parking lot, you never know what's happened there in the past. And maybe there's something spooky. And maybe there's something ridiculously scary that you should be looking out for and you just don't know about. So finally... I'm going to leave you with one of the spookiest songs. I didn't have a melody for it, just the lyrics, so I hope it goes as spooky. I'm just going to play it right. I'm not even going to look at the strings. And actually, I was going to do this on like a little organ and garage band. I'm just going to do it with my guitar. So here we go. Okay, I'm glad I know where it's at. Okay, good. Let me get a capo up here. It's probably going to make it out tune, which is even better. everybody thank you for sticking around for our spooky month episode remember if you want to get your um rp enterprises medicated adhesive graphic strips to make you look real tough like you've been savaged by a cougar or maybe yet a zombie remember RP Enterprises brings you their latest invention, the medicated adhesive graphic strip. This medicated bandage strip is emblazoned with bold graphics depicting infected pus oozing wounds. And whether you have a minor scratch, a hangnail, or a clean gash, make sure you customize it with the medicated adhesive graphic strip, or MAGS for short, from RP Enterprises. Also, thank you for uh, supporting us on this uh, episode, Field Initiative Knives. And congratulations, Chris Wiggins, for putting another baby into our lives. Thank you so much. Field Initiative Knives, made in the USA by an American for everyone. Except zombies. You should not be using knives if you're a zombie. All right, everybody. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if not, write your local congressman. Next week, we're going to bring you a fun, news-filled episode that catches up on what we should have put out last week. Again, I apologize for not feeling well, but if uh, if you're a doctor, or maybe even a witch doctor, you want to come over next time and give me the what for and tell me how to live my life and how to better be... Uh, not six, I could produce a podcast weekly for these fools. Do it. And if you're not, well, then I'll see you next time on the flip side. That's a ghost having fun.
Junkie, I'm not sure this was a spooky episode. Can it, Tobor? Junkie, what's white and has a tail? Oh, that's easy. It's a um, it's a spur. A ghost cat. <laughs>